0: A sought-after and loved New York courtesan's life will be cut short after one night that still today is doused in mystery. However, after her murder, she will change the way the media cover stories, cementing her into history. Just like now, our justice system was totally broken. And the media and court were more concerned with providing entertainment than bringing justice to the up-and-coming, beautiful 23-year-old. Hello, my name is Summer, and this is Paying For It. I got something to my leg, gonna make a dead man come on. I got something between my legs, gonna make a dead man come on. Yeah. I'm gonna turn back my mattress and let you. Thank you for being here for episode 33 we are back for another spooky episode of paying for it and today i have another story of sex murder and scandal we also have the story about how the death of a sex worker was used to push newspapers and writing in the whole new direction when it came to true crime and just making newspapers sell, sell, sell with scandals and headlines, not focusing on the facts, but instead looking for any juicy tidbits of information they could to bring big headlines and push bigger sales. We will be getting to all of that and more, but before we do, hello, how the hell are you? We are back with our last little spooky episode. Next week is Thanksgiving, so I will be officially saying goodbye to all my spooky decorations, which means we will be back talking about the Queens of History. Although today's story is still about a beautiful queen, it's just that her story wasn't able to be fully written, sadly. But yeah, we will be getting back to normal episodes after this one. Also, we have about two or three episodes left before I will be taking a break for the holidays, and then I will be back bigger and badder than ever for season two. So this is just your heads up for that. I am really looking forward to season two. I'm going to be really focusing more on the research and not the timeliness. I don't want to push, though I want to have a lot of content coming out on a timely manner. I want to make sure the stories are being told properly and not pushing just for content, but more focusing on the deep deep research of it all. So yeah, I'm very excited for season two. I'm very excited for seasons two kickoff because I've already been like working on it and yeah, it's gonna be great. But other than that, I'm just gearing up for Thanksgiving. I um I'm excited I have Thanksgiving off. So if you guys are a Thanksgiving celebrator or whatever, I hope you are enjoying that time with your family or friends or just with yourself, honestly. And if you're not a big Thanksgiving person or don't celebrate, I hope you're enjoying your normal day to day and I hope it's going well for you. I, uh, have the cutest little earrings on and i always forget that when i have headphones on you can't see but they're little gnomes holding a pumpkin they're adorable i just got them and yeah so other than that just hanging out last night i tried a new beer called ingzingu and it was a black lager from florida and to be honest, it wasn't my favorite. (laughs) Um, but if you're into darker beers and into lagers, you might very well really like it. So if that kind of sounds like it's up your alley and you like to try things, go out and find it, give it a try. Let me know how you feel about it. it. Wasn't my fave. Like I said, just because it was a little too hoppy at the end. Um, I don't know. I like a real balanced beer, and learning that medium style beers are my thing, so that's kind of where I was with that. And um, yeah, I also went out and got the bottle of Delirium Noel Noel, and I I didn't know that beer companies did this, but they have a 750 liter Noel bottle and that's awesome it's almost like a wine or liquor bottle so I don't want to open it yet until I'm ready to actually drink it because you know beer is not really savable like that I don't think but Delirium's interesting because every year they come out with their noel and it's a little bit different every single year so I'm excited to try this one and see how I like it and hopefully it's delicious we'll see though Um, yeah, but I hope you guys are doing well and I hope you guys are enjoying me and paying for it and looking forward to the new up and coming episodes with lots more research in it, lots more facts and yeah, (laughs) I don't know what I'm saying, but with that, let's just kind of jump into it, I guess. I will give a warning. This story will most likely make you a little mad. Honestly, if you're a true crime fan, you already know the feelings of frustration when it comes to true crime and sometimes, yeah, I mean, true crime can be very frustrating and this is no different and this is a true crime of history, so... That can be very frustrating. Her life is now one marred by the fact that her murder became a sensation and more people cared about the story of her death than capturing and bringing justice to the one who killed her. She was young, full of life, and ready to take on the world when she arrived in New York. She had most of it eating out of the palm of her hand, and she would have had a long life of glamour ahead of her. Today, in telling her story, it is to show, yes, there is a dark side, and it's darker, but we won't judge her for her career, and we believe those who come forward after her death, but we also want to show that this is the the real story that kicked off true crime and the media learning that true crime and the scandal of it all can really draw out people and it makes people kind of go wild for it a little bit and that is still something that happens today and it is still today, this model of pushing true crime into like media and this like scandalizing it and making it a big old headline. Her story really is what allowed true crime and the push for sales. Like, her death, unfortunately, turned a new leaf for newspapers and journalism, and it wasn't always in the great way because really you'll see for these people who wrote about her, they weren't caring about actually finding her killer or bringing her any sort of justice. They wanted to really push sales they really only cared about the money and they forgot that there was a true living person behind this story and it's wild and something horrible happened to her so yeah it really is the model of what today are you okay Travis my cat just got his head stuck in a box let me go help him Okay, he got out, but still, I want to go love him because I can tell he's scared. He's going back for it, so he clearly did not learn his lesson. Anyways... Yeah, her death um, changed the way media looked at true crime, especially true crime with a scandal. Anything involving sex really sells. Hello, that's um, welcome to paying for it. But yeah, so we can really, this was the first true crime story that blew up in the media. So with that, you know what time it is. Grab yourself a cocktail, a mocktail, a coffee, a water, whatever you fancy. Today, I have two drinks, which, you know, if you know me, that's pretty normal for me. I love, I love a sipper. So we are gonna have a little bit of a, my favorite, the Dr. Pepper of beers. Hello, Shiner. that has got cobweb all over. Um... So we'll pop that open. Mmm. Delicious. Smells lovely. And I also brought over my little Lacroix, a little Limoncello, the only La Croix I really like. And so, yeah, with that, cheers, 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 cheers. And let me introduce you to Hel- Helen Duet. Cheers. Born... Dorcas Dorian on October 18th, 1813. I don't mean to laugh at her name, but like, hello, family. What were you thinking, Dorcas? I'm sure back then people are fucking mean, and I don't know how often... um, Ladies and girls were going to school, but damn, if this was someone who was in school today, think of how mean kids would be if someone named their daughter Dorcas. Don't do that. Don't do that. Anyways, she's born uh, October 18th, 1813 in Temple, Maine into what people say was a working class family. Now, like most working class families of this time, it wasn't an easy life, you know? Some say that even today, working class families still very much struggle. I mean, that's the truth. Working class is not like an. It's a struggle. But then a tragedy is going to strike young um, strike at a young age for Dorcas as her mother passes away from unknown causes. This will cause her father to fall even more into the life of alcoholism. It is kind of rumored that both of her parents were already um, dr- heavy drinkers, so she may have already been being raised by parents that didn't uh, care for her as much as they should have but when her mother does pass away her father will just kind of fully abandon himself into alcoholism her father eventually either abandons her daughter his daughter altogether Or he may have died, leaving Dorcas alone in the world at around 12-ish. Sadly, um, it's kind of, you know, hard to tell because history back in the 1800s, especially the early 1800s, you know, it's hard to track all that. Now, mind you, like I said, this is the 1800s, so when her family past or maybe abandoned their kids. Uh, it wasn't like she had any resources to help her. So they were so she was like truly just going to be on her own. And again, this is the 1800s. So at 12, it's like you get married or you get a job, but as a, like, as a woman, you don't have very much, like, open to you to get a job, so um, this is a pretty, like, honestly traumatizing and scary time for her, and it's wild because the world of course, looked a lot different back then, a lot scarier, darker, and just plain out dirty in all senses of that world. word, you know? Eventually, though, Judge Nathan Weston of the Maine Supreme Judicial Court will adopt her or maybe just employ her at the young age of 12 or 13. Um... So this is a young girl, um, who suddenly found herself in a, alone in this world. And now again, a lot of her early years are a slightly a mystery to history. So it's hard to tell exactly what this arrangement looked like. Most likely it was a working living arrangement. um, At least that's kind of best case scenario. I mean, well, to be honest, best case scenario would have been him adopting her in the goodness of his heart. But mm, let me tell you, that's probably not what happened. But um, yeah, so basically what I think it is that the judge did was bring her in to keep his house clean and keep things tidy. While he gave her a place to sleep and probably provided her food, not with actual payments. I don't believe in my opinion that Wesson did this out of the goodness of his heart more because he saw he could benefit. And also back then that probably would have made people think, oh, he's such a good person. You know, I'm judging this man and I'm sorry, like low key. Don't be mad at me or be mad at me. I actually don't care. I just, the more I learn about history and men of power, it just doesn't look good. To be fair, though, I wasn't there when this went down. So when I um, talk about Judge Mr. Nathan Weston, uh, it might be mean to judge him that way. He might have been a very good, nice, respectable man. But for some reason, her story does lead me to believe that it wasn't a father-daughter relationship that developed between Weston and Dorcas. This becomes even clearer because at the age of 18, Dorcas will pack her bags and leave the judge's house, f- judge's house for good. Um, what happened to cause her to leave? Well, again, that's kind of a big mystery to history. However, some sources say that there was a scandal that happened in Maine causing her to have to leave her hometown and all that she ever knew. The details, of course, are so unclear and could be fully false. But of course, Um, The main scandal that would have a young lady running from everything she's ever known could honestly be only one thing. And that, of course, is a sex scandal. I mean... What else is new? It should be known that Dorcas was a very beautiful young lady and one that was orphaned at a very young age. So it is a scandal involving a. So was it a scandal involving a certain judge? Was the judge innocent and another man is to blame? Or was there even a scandal in the first place? Honestly, who knows? Maybe she just wanted to get away from the judge. Maybe at 18, he no longer felt he owed her anything. Or maybe she met a man who promised her the world just to get into her panties. Or maybe the judge was a shitty person and um, she had to leave because she no longer could avoid his advancements. We don't know. All we do know is she will find she will eventually find herself fleeing to Portland, Maine. and it's kind of weird because I grew up in Oregon and the big city in Oregon or one of the big city in Oregon is Portland so it's like this whole time I was like having to remind myself she's not in Portland Oregon she's in Portland Maine and I've never been there but I bet you it's beautiful anyways a young lady who finds herself without any means to support herself in this time again the 1800s no choices available to women. So when she flees, she of course finds herself turning to the world of sex work to make her way. So yeah, Dorcas finds herself in Portland, Maine, learning the ropes and the basics of life of a working girl. Now, just like her, any new job you start you start at the bottom and that was so true for Dorcas so what it looked like for her in Portland to start at the bottom um possibly she could be working at a lower end brothel she could be working the streets um again she's young she's beautiful so what her life looked like in Portland was unclear and. However, whatever it was, it did not turn her away from the life. And in Portland, she will start working under her alias, the name she will become known for, and that is Helen Jewett. So cheers to Helen Duet not being afraid to do what she had to to survive and playing the cards that life gave her. Eventually, Helen will make the move to Boston, and she will hone her skills as a lady of the night, where she will learn the ins and outs of the lifestyle and how to elevate her status. Once you enter the world of sin, you either have to take it for all it's worth or let it take you for all your worth. And isn't that true about life? You either take life for all it's worth or life takes you for all your worth. Helen was ready to take the world for all it was worth. Making the choice to move was part of putting herself in a higher class. The goal of any public woman would be to work her way up. And sometimes you had to move to do that because you had to get away from the current clientele you already had if you needed to adjust a working girl had a couple of options when it came to this lifestyle and at this time you either one met a man and married and retired two became a brothel owner or three, became a high-class lady, a courtesan, making a name for yourself, and making as much money as possible, and ride that wave as long as possible. Tragically, we don't get to fully know what all Helen's long-term goals for herself were because her story, like I said, will get cut short, but it does seem that she was on her way to making it to the very tippity-tippity top, and it seemed as if at the moment her goal was to continue to ride that wave, baby. Of course, you as a working girl attempting to make it to the top had to be where the money was. Well, Boston for the time was a bustling port city that seen money flowing in and out of it often. Now, the thing about sex work is it's very popular in port cities because that is where the money is. It's usually a big city and things are happening constantly. And so it's in Boston that um, Helen will learn a lot from the world around her. It's also in Boston that she starts to hone her skills a lot. She's going for the big dogs, so she starts refining her looks, making sure that she's always presentable, elegant, and as lovely as possible, really looking for a very high-class respectable man. Eventually, after her time comes to an end in Boston, she will move to New York City. Why she chooses to leave Boston is unknown. It is uncommon. It isn't uncommon for the working dolls to move around and follow the money trail. Also, they had the freedom and money to do as they wished, really. So she could have just been ready for the next big adventure in her life. Um, Adventure and money are great excuses to move if you were a working girl in the 1800s. New York was a great place to be as well if you were living that life. New York was known to have unregulated and unsupervised red light district around this time Helen around the time Helen found herself there, she was joining at least 10,000 other ladies trying to make their way. It was practically the prostitution capital of the US. So if Helen was going to make it the way she wanted to, she was going to have to be on the very top of her game and work extremely hard because the competition was high. Okay. It is clear though that she did because her name preceded her and she was able to land herself in a very high class Bordello in New York. And when the competition is that high, that is not an easy thing to do. At 23 years old, Helen will meet a 19 year old Richard Robinson. He will become a regular of Helen's and they will go on to have somewhat of an up-and-down, rocky relationship. Richard was an up-and-coming, prominent boy who was working for a shopkeeper, which, mind you, yes, it's like a very classy job for the time. I mean, still owning your own business is a good thing, but he he did not own his own business. He was working for a shopkeeper. But that was a big thing back then and it was a very classy job. His father was also a prominent man within the community, and he was also a shopkeeper. Even though Richard was working for a well-known shopkeeper and his father was an upstanding man, it is said and rumored that he was also known to run with a bit of a rougher crowd. He himself had tendencies to be a bit of a man who loved to do crime, I guess, and again, he's 19, so what that crime looks like, we're not really sure, but it is known that he told the line. He was, he lived a life of gray, I would like to say. Not fully in the life of vice, but not fully in the life of upstanding, good religious boy, but for Helen, He was a man who had a lot going for him and a constant source of cash so he could afford her company, and so she gave him her time. The two will see each other often following the initial meeting. What started off as a normal client relationship will turn into something more sinister for her. This will bring us to April 9th and the early morning of April 10th, 1836, when Rosina Townsend awakes from her slumber after hearing something odd in the room near her. At first, she doesn't think much of it, as this was a brothel after all, bumping and late night noises weren't uncommon but as she got up to check on all the girls and their rooms she will be met with smoke coming from one of the girls rooms so mm, she is like what the fuck of course because this is her house and she's like what's happening so she of course will panic this is the 1800s as well so fire alarms aren't what we know of them to be today and fires could start off very small and innocent well is any fire innocent no but could it but it could be small and what today would just be something you put out real quick or you know easily handled but back then could be extremely extremely devastating not just for the house or a building but it could also eventually accidentally take out an entire town and be extremely devastating for the entire people, everyone, you know, it could destroy a lot of things. So Rosina will start to scream fire that's the fire alarm she starts to scream fire 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 over and over again to not only get the girls up out of their slumber or whatever happening so that they can start to evacuate and get to safety but also she is trying to alert a few of the watchmen out on the street. And eventually that will happen and they will come in from the nearby station and start to help. <laughs> the watchman and Townsend will break into the room that the smoke is coming from and seems that the fire is er- like originating from. They, however, will be stunned upon breaking into the room about the scene they are about to walk into. The bed is alighted with flames, but it is upon the bed that will bring them all to a very short pause because they weren't expecting this because lying on the bed that is in flames the, is the body of 23-year-old Helen they will go on to put the fire out by dumping buckets of water on the mattress and the body that was laying upon it um luckily they're able to get the fire very quickly contained lucky for everyone because like i said fires could be very devastating back in the day and so they get it contained they're also able to luckily She's so lucky that she heard some random noise because she um, she's also able to put out the flames. But also, more importantly, really be able to save and preserve Helene's body um, because it's very clear upon like after the initial panic of the fire was settled that the scene they're met with is very gruesome upon examining helen's body one side of it her body is like clearly burnt very badly by the fire but that was not the cause of death and it was very clear that something more sinister happened to her because looking upon her her head could be seen like, blood that was pouring out of it from, like, three very deep gash rooms to her forehead. The police, of course, are going to be summoned, and they immediately suspect foul play. While investigating the crime scene the police were able to locate a hatchet and a long cloak hastily thrown in the backyard of the brothel. So it's clear that someone like did something very bad to someone and they panicked, started a fire to hopefully destroy all evidence. Well, this is the 1800s so evidence is kind of hard to... Evidence and quotes, I guess. and um, But basically, to cover up their crime, they started this fire and then fled the scene, ditching everything. And it's a little weird to ditch it in the backyard of the brothel. I don't know if they just thought that they wouldn't be able to find it or what, but... Yeah, they ditch it in the backyard, so clearly something bad had to have happened to Helene that night, and the cops turned to the ladies of the house to gather more information. All of the ladies within the house will immediately start pointing in the direction of her last gentleman caller, and that could be nobody other than the 19-year-old Richard Robertson, who... Rosaline will say she had canceled, uh, so Helene had canceled other, uh, plans with another client to meet up with Richard on his demanding, like, very forceful demand that she meet with him that night, um, so everyone's, like, Richard Robinson was the last one who was, like, seen with her. He was the last one. And he was already... They had a volatile relationship, and things were kind of not going great with them, so uh, once they get, once the police get his name and information, they will go on and summon him to the crime scene, which at first I was like, what the fuck, but at this time, that is pretty common for the police to bring a suspect right to the crime scene so they could gauge their reaction to them seeing the, the body and stuff, and so that's exactly what the police did that night, hustling to rouse Richardson out of bed and bring him back to the room of Helene where she lay. Upon forcing him to view the body of Helen, the cops noted that Robertson seemed very quote-unquote composed and embossed. Um, passivity while viewing Helene like it was no big deal to him. While well, the police continued to press him for on his possible involvement in the murder, his arrogant reply is pretty telling. Do you think I would blast my brilliant prospect by so ridiculous an, an of an act? I am a young man of only 19 years of age yesterday with the most brilliant prospect. So, you know, just kind of being like, I, me, how could I ever murder a sex worker or even be involved with a sex worker? Because I am brilliant and I'm so young and I have so much going for me and she didn't, I guess. Normally, a murder of a working girl would go very unnoticed and pretty much fade into the background, sadly. However, at the time of Helen's murder, Penny News was becoming very popular within the U.S., So when writers from the newspaper found out that a well-connected young business clerk was suspected of the scandalous murder of Helen, who was one of the city's most popular courtesans, the local penny papers took this story and ran with it. This will take the sad murder of a real woman and morph it into one of the first highly sensationalized national news stories in America. Everyone was talking about it. Everyone was writing about it. You couldn't find a paper back in this time without some headline involving this story. It had all the elements that caused people to be invested and want to know all the juicy details because it was sex, it was murder, and it was a lot of scandal. The Penny Rags will run with the story and this will cause a shift in how true crime is reported on even now still today. Instead of advocating and giving only true facts, they will run wild claims. Some will drag Helene's name through the mud, and others will be paid to tell tales that aren't true. All will forget that the All will forget about the fact that a young girl's life was tragically taken. And instead become very selfish with their motives. So not a lot of facts were known by the newspaper writers but they knew they had to jump on this story that people were willing to spend money on and this was a time that it was hard to get people to spend money when a lot of people didn't have money. So an all-out war begins with multiple paper industries. Most of the stories about Helene's murder would be sensationalized to the fullest, and none of it is based in facts at all. The papers did not care whether what they were reporting on was true or whatever. They really just wanted to make sure the headlines sold copies and that their headline was the best so that, they, that the general public would go towards theirs and not a competitors. It started out first with just sensationalize the people involved. For example... New York Herald described the Hel- uh, described Helen as being famous for parading Wall Street in her elegant green dresses, often telling stories of her walking the streets as she flirted with the brokers on her walks on Broadway, with great boldness of her demeanor, not being ashamed of herself. They also reported on the suspect and how he had respectable connections among merchants through his family due to the fact that his father was a shop owner, but to be able to flash his name, a well-to-do, like, prominent status man, being a potential murderer of a call girl... Well, that was scandal, baby, and the papers started to fly off the shelves. People wanted to know everything, but they didn't care. A lot of these people must have known that most of this shit was made up, but maybe not, but... They didn't care because they just wanted to know the juicy details. They wanted to know about him. They wanted to know about her. They wanted to make their judgments. They wanted to fight about it. They wanted to conversate about it. This was entertainment for them. This murder grew a life of its own, and because not a lot of information was available of Helen, that depending on the newspaper you were reading, some painted her as a troubled working girl, and others an innocent victim. It couldn't be both, though, for the newspapers. If they painted her as just this evil, vile fallen woman she was in fact responsible for her death and was now even after her death dragging this poor man into her dirty deeds I guess and as she was an innocent victim even then they were still painting her as someone who was troubled but got mixed up with someone she shouldn't have. Eventually, the articles went so far as starting to forge evidence of not only her background but now the case itself. At one point, the Herald published what they claimed was a letter from the quote-unquote real killer. However, the editor of that paper, James Gordon Bennett, was later accused of paying someone $50 to write that letter. Helen's murder and story soon just turns into a media storm and just a battle of who could get the most readers. And sadly, that worked. The people didn't want the truth or even really justice. They wanted the scandal and story and they wanted to gobble up all of it. They wanted the entertainment. Finally, on June 2nd, 1836, the trial was finally scheduled to start. Roughly 6,000 people would go on to City Hall to witness this sensationalized (laughs) trial of Richard Robinson. And oh boy was it. The trial was no less turned into a way of entertainment on its own as well. The lawyers, especially the defense, played into the entertainment, the crowd, and became the subjects of the next headlines. During the five-day trial, the prosecution was able to really build a good case of providing that the true killer was, in fact, Richard Robinson, the man that was last seen with Helen the night by multiple witnesses. The cloak that was found in the backyard was known to be worn by Robinson. People recognized him in it that night. It seemed that it should have been kind of an open-shut case. That was until the defense was magically able to provide Robinson an alibi for that night out of nowhere. This will go on to challenge the entire theory that the prosecution based the whole case on. It is rumored and believed that the mysterious new alibi was paid for by Richard himself, the defense, or even his family because this was causing a lot of issues for not only him, but his family as well. With that, it was time for the closing arguments. And if this trial hadn't already been a show, well, the closing arguments would be Made into an even bigger spectacular and just a wild ride, really. As they went on for 10 hours and was made with such dramatic flair on both parties, as much as they could give, they gave it their all. Of course, the media would love this and everyone was eating it up. Newburyport Daily Herald reads, the incomparably noble and lofty strain of elegance with which the prosecutor the prosecution's argument was delivered or of that extremely empathetically energetic manner in which he at times worked on the feelings of his auditors tell nearly all eyes were moist in fine. We hesitate not to sit was a great, a masterpiece of elegance as was ever delivered at the bar. So basically he just worked his words and magic really played in on the judges like feelings, making everyone cry and feel bad for Richard. When it was time to deliberate the judge, would let the jury go to deliberations but not after giving his own last parting words about the type of characters who had been on the stands and this is basically because all of a sudden now they have a um a he said she said kind of thing a bunch of girls who work in a brothel saying from the start from the start, never changing their stories or anything, but basically saying this is what happened, this is what we know to have happened, and then all of a sudden they now have this shopkeeper or this prominent man coming in and giving Richard A. Alibi out of nowhere. But he is a upstanding, quote-unquote, upstanding citizen. Okay, So the judge will basically go on to... Um, Advise basically to judge the so the judge advising basically to judge the ladies of the evening. At one point, he will state prostitutes are not to be entitled to credit unless their testimony is corroborated by others drawn from better sources. Testimony derived wholly from a person of this description is not to be received he is basically telling them that they should hold less weight in what the ladies said because they couldn't truly be trusted as their status they held in life so he's saying the jury should not take the word of the ladies that were working the brothel who knew her who knew what was happening who knew her secrets who knew The relationship between the two who witnessed her last few hours of Helene, the person who was tragically taken from them because again, this was like a sisterhood and she was taken violently from this world, but their words meant nothing because the status they held in life. It's horrific. We couldn't dare trust the word of a hoe now, could we? It's almost like the judge got paid to say something because he made sure to throw all the shade towards the woman and pointing out that the word of a shopkeeper should be, of course, held to a higher degree and trusted over those who live life of sin, even though... At this time, it was already rumored and believed that he was paid to say what he was saying. And it only took fifteen minutes for the jury to come back with their verdicts. Sadly, to the shock of a lot, a lot, the defendant, Richard Robertson, was found not guilty on the charges of murder and he was acquitted a free man. Sadly, her death has gone unsolved and after 200 years, it most likely is never going to be solved. Even though writers and the world made a spectacle of her death, judging her, displaying any little scandalized judging her and displaying any little scandalizing info they could about her using her life her death as a way to make money and sell papers after paper not caring about her or getting her justice in any sort of way of course the newspapers were in a frenzy with this shocking verdict after they will continue to use her death to push sales, and be very selfish with their motives. And after the trial, Robinson will go on and move to Texas in August 1836. He will change his name to Richard Parmalee because even though he was a prominent man, um, Scandal surely never leaves you, so he couldn't stay in New York even though he was, you know, a young prominent 19 year old who had a lot going for him and he was found not guilty but the scandal never left his name so he had to leave and he will live a relatively peaceful and unfortunately wealthy life which honestly fuck that dude but 12 years later an editor of the national police gazette got his hands on a package of 90 letters between Helen and Richard. Letters that were attempted multiple times to be entered into evidence by the prosecutions, but the judge denied them from entering the public proceedings over and over again. So again, I'd like to remind you, our justice system, even back then, was broken. These letters, which contained a very intimate look into the relationship between Helen and Richard and kind of a look into Richard himself and what type of man he was. And a look, and it kind of gave a motive on why he may have truly been behind the murder of Helen. It also contained... Some very damning evidence of his seedy life that Richard was living at the time in New York. The letter showed that in the beginning of this, remember, business relationship between Helen and him, which don't forget that that was the case for her, this relationship, he had to pay her for her company. She wasn't in love with him. This was always about money and maybe she cared for him at a certain point in their relationship, but as a girl who works as a sex worker, it's important to remember any relationship is a client is a client relationship. It's money, it's transactional. He of course in the beginning was very flirty and often professing and often he would profess his love for her and he was clearly a bit obsessed with her. However, as the letters went on, he expressed increasingly jealous and frustrations from him. Richard was getting angry with her for not being what he wanted her to be, someone who only loved him, someone who only gave him his her time. He forgot that he met and paid her for her time. He forgot what their relationship was about. So in these letters, Helen started to also back away and start to attempt to put distance between them. But as he continued to threaten her and be scary towards her, she will go on to write that she knew about his nefarious dealings, and even at one point, she will threaten to expose him, because he won't leave her alone. The final letter is the most damning piece of evidence against Richard Robinson, that remember, the judge, the prosecution, the defense everyone knew about. In his final letter to Helen, it will read, You are never so foolish as when you threaten me. Keep quiet until I come on Saturday night, and then we will see if we cannot be better friends hereafter. Do not tell any person I shall come. So, I mean... How blatant is it that he's telling the night of her death, he tells her, don't tell anyone I'm coming to see you. Cancel your plans. I'm coming to see you and you are never so foolish to threaten me. You'll find out what happens when you threaten me. So maybe his plan whatever was to go to hurt her, but when she did not give in to his will, it clearly is what ended up happening. Again, this evidence is used to be a huge headline and bring back the first murder to ever really sell headlines for true crime. Again, sensationalizing the murder of Helen, the, gaz- the Gazette reprints the letters five, in five different issues and even posted copies in their office windows, using her death, to make a spectacle of the situation. However, this evidence would have come to light way too late, unfortunately for Helen, as the world had really lost track of what happened to Richard Robertson. And even if they had known where he was, it wouldn't have mattered because, you know, like double jeopardy and everything So, the not-so-unsolved murder of Helen, the woman whose worst moment was plastered all over headlines not to find her killer, but instead to be selfish and sell newspapers for money and sensation, Helen deserved to be able to live her life of freedom and glamour She also deserved justice and to be protected before and after death. Instead, she was failed so many times by everyone, mostly Richard, who so clearly was the one to bring her harm. She was failed by every newspaper which wrote article after article dissecting her life and judging her in life and in death. And the judge and the jury of those who were supposed to bring her justice, especially that fucking judge. But jury, come on, the evidence was there. I mean, yes, the letters didn't come to light, but it it was clear. Her death really did change the way media reports on true crime. And even today, we still see it being sensationalized. Um, We can still get lost in the headlines, forgetting that behind the headlines is a real story of a real person whose life was affected by someone else. But also, how long our justice system has been fucking broken. How easy it is to manipulate people. How easy it is to pay someone to oops, forget about evidence, not allow evidence, to say something that will stir, just, it's broken, clearly. But before I get on a tangent, that, my friends, was the story of the good, the bad, the ugly, but also the dark, the morbid, and the unjust of Helen Jewett. Whose life was cut short tragically, but instead of solving her murder, it would go and cement her into history for being the first story to really sensationalize sex and murder in the US. I am sad for her life because she was so young and her life had so much life to live. And I wonder what would have had happened had her life not taken from her so viciously. We could have possibly been telling her life story in a normal episode. What would that story have looked like for her? I wish that she would have gotten the justice for her murder that she so, so deserved. I also wish we could figure out a solution for the bias and judgment of sex workers that leads to the those being in dangerous situations and not believed i mean still today that is a huge issue and it feels like the answer is so very clearly in front of us the solution being pretty easy decriminalize and destigmatize with that thank you for being here And learning the life of Helen Duet. I hope you are enjoying this month of the darker. I hope you enjoyed these last couple weeks of the darker, the spookier side of paying for it. If you haven't already, please consider following, leaving a review. And if you are interested in the video versions, they're now available on YouTube. So jump on over and check those out if that's your kind of vibe. And yeah, with that, I hope you guys have a great rest of your day. I will see you next time. And thanks for being here. Goodbye. I got someone to be in my leg, gonna make a dead man. Come on. Damn. I got something between my legs gonna make a dead man come on.